0: Welcome to BingeWorthy, a podcast dedicated to telling you which of these many dozens of streaming shows that are being thrown at you each week and month are worth your time and attention. Hosted by myself, Mike D'Angelo, and today I get to talk to you about one of the hottest shows on the planet right now. That's right. Today we are talking about HBO's The Last of Us. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about the show by now, as it's basically the biggest thing on TV, but if you haven't, the show is adapted from the popular video game series of the same name and follows a character named Joel Miller, played by Pedro Pascal, as this hardened survivor of a zombie-like fungal pandemic, and he's charged with keeping a 14-year-old girl named Ellie, played by Bella Ramsey, alive. She's basically humanity's last hope. The show... Uh, Also stars Gabriel Luna and Anna Torv and John Hanna and Nick Offerman and Melanie Linsky and many more people popping up as the show goes on. Joining me to discuss the show is Emmy-winning writer, creator, showrunner, director, Craig Mazin. The show, what can I say about it? It's just supremely well done. It's also very clearly a loving adaptation for fans of the game and also works very well for non-fans as well. Um, Fair warning uh, about the interview. We do dive a little bit into the the latest episode, episode three with Bill and Frank, and why the changes were made to their characters. I don't think it spoils the story too much. Regardless, if you're not watching The Last of Us, get on board right now, because it's just a truly wonderful, frightening, heartbreaking show about the real effects of love and what we'll do because of it, which we also dive deeper into during the interview. Uh, but before we get to my chat with Craig Mazin, I've gotta tell you that BingeWorthy is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes the Playlist Podcast, the Discourse, The Rogue Ones, Yellowstoners, Deep Focus, The Fourth Wall, and more. We can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite shows. Follow, like, subscribe, drop us a rating on any of those as we do greatly appreciate it. As a reminder to our listeners, the first three episodes of The Last of Us can be streamed on HBO Max, with new episodes premiering every Sunday on HBO. Okay, let's get to my interview with writer, creator, Emmy winner, podcaster, director, and very talented and kind man, Craig Mazin. All right. Well, first off, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. I'm a big fan of yours. Big fan of script notes. Uh, the last of us is fantastic. So this is like the perfect time to be a Craig Mazen fan. Congratulations, uh, by the way.
1: Thank you. That. What an intro.
0: So I do have a little time with you today, so I, I want to go like all the way back to like the origins of your career and your your story as a writer. I'm not going to assume that everybody's heard this origin story, so let's just start with where you got, what you consider your break in the industry.
1: Would that be Rocketman, or is it a little before that? I guess it was a little bit before that. I came to Los Angeles when I was right out of college. I was 21 years old. I didn't know anybody, and I didn't have any money, and <laughs> I <That> was in <laughs> trouble. Trouble from the start. Uh, I just um, just called up a bunch of temp agencies and got placed at an ad agency that made promos for CBS shows. I think primarily I got that job because I could type. And uh, so, so much for my college degree. But while I was there, I did start to write. I started writing promos and things that I guess I caught the eye of the creative director and learned quite a bit in two years about writing with concision because the most you ever get is 30 seconds and and writing with purpose and writing for an audience to achieve a goal. And these are a good basis for being um, a writer, I think, is just purpose. And then I went over to Disney to do the same sort of thing but for movies and trailers, you know? And while I was there, yeah, that's how I got started in screenwriting. I mean, it was nineteen ninety five and this business, like basically every movie they made made money because the whole (laughs) video market was so insane. (laughs) So it was, it was was a great time to, to want to try and be a feature writer. And I, I had a knack, I guess I had a knack for it. Although I must say like, I've tried my best over the years to get better as I go.
0: Yeah. How do you look back on some of those 90s comedies i feel like i watched senseless on cable over and over and like i had rocket man on dvd for sure so i'm wondering how you look back at those times
1: um it was great and it was terrible um (laughs) the great part was i was learning so much screenwriting is a weird job most people that do it even people that do it professionally where they're paid A lot of them never get to the second part of the job, which is they're making your movie. There are a lot of people who get paid to write features and they just never get made. Or if they do get made, somebody else is brought in to rewrite it. And so there's this strange divorce between the writing part of the job and the producing part of the job. And that's tragic. And I think it accounts for why a lot of movies are great. And certainly as the years went on, I sort of looked at what had happened to some of the scripts I'd written. Um, I was unsatisfied with a number of those things because I, I just thought, well, that's not what I had intended. On the other hand, I did not have the skill or experience to say I could do better. It took a while and it took a lot of studying and took watching people that were really good at these things, whether it was David Zucker or Todd Phillips to, or Johann Rink, even as we were making Chernobyl to just absorb a lot of lessons from other people that I was watching who did really good work and, you know, eventually get myself to a place where, okay, I'm pretty comfortable now being in charge of stuff. And I think I am the best interpreter of my own screenwriting for, <laughs> <laughs> which shouldn't be surprising, but it took me a while to get there.
0: Yeah. It's it's also a path that you hear about a lot because writers, especially feature writers. You know, they have to teach themselves to disconnect from the film sometimes because you're credited for projects that maybe you have very little to do with script wise or projects just get taken away from you because you're the writer and now it's in someone else's hands. Like you were kind of saying, is this the, the path, ultimate path, like d- director, showrunner, were these paths that you saw yourself taking or was this like, hey, I, I need to take the reins here?
1: yeah it wasn't anything where i thought oh i'm gonna eventually i never thought i would end up at television i never thought that i would end up really directing but a few times i had directed were fairly traumatic and difficult and yeah not sure particularly successful and being a feature writer you get used to being the the person who has no authority and yet massive responsibility and you get very good at being diplomatic and figuring out how to work your way through things. You become somebody that everyone is relying on, the director, the actor, the studio, and yet nobody publicly will say so. (laughs) (laughs) They will disavow that every single time. That's where I kind of thought I was, but there was a moment where I sat down with my agent and I said, I think I can do better. I think that I can do better than a lot of the things that I'm Uh, being asked to write and i'm happy for the success i've had but i think it's time i think it's time that i just push all my chips into the center of the table and do better and that was chernobyl and i did not (laughs) one hell of a uh, bet well yeah yeah it paid off i mean i (laughs) uh, bet on yourself is a pretty good plan if yourself can do it (laughs) 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 um In, in that case, it worked out, I, I, and it wasn't that, because uh, I wasn't paid very much, much less than I would normally be paid for you know, screenwriting, because I was a completely new entity. I, I had not worked in television, I had not worked at the premium network, HBO, um, and I had not worked in drama. So I don't imagine they had much hope that whatever I was going to write was going to turn into what it turned into. I don't think anybody predicted that if they predicted that that would have been crazy it, it, it exceeded all of our expectations in a great way
0: it exceeded a lot of expectations it's a, an amazing show and it was yeah like you're saying it's a hard left for a lot of the stuff you've been doing you were a comedy writer coming up in, in terms of content it, it was just a, a very different experience I'm guessing your experience as a whole was very different how much of a, of a fight was that to to get that project and to get it off the ground then
1: it wasn't a fight at all because it didn't require massive commitment or act of faith, I should say, from HBO early on, because they said, OK, we'll give you this, you know, a small amount of money. And what you'll do is you'll write a show Bible, which is the description of all the episodes, and then you'll write a script and it'll be the script for the first episode. And then we'll take a look. And if they don't make the show, they ultimately don't end up spending much money. It's it's a pretty good way to kind of kick the tires and see if, if this is going to be worth it. And I poured myself into that because I just was sick at the thought that it wouldn't get made. It just mattered so much to me. And I think I kind of put them in a tough spot because I wrote it and then they were like, oh, that uh, was pretty good. <laughs> 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 you know, who's going to watch a show about Chernobyl? And in, to their credit, they they didn't care about that part, you know, and they, they made it work for themselves. They got a good partner in Sky in the UK and... Ah, uh, Jane Featherstone, who runs Sister Pictures over there, and so she and I and Carolyn Strauss just put this whole thing together and willed it into existence. It was again not something that I think anybody thought anyone would watch. It was more of a prestige play, I guess, for HBO, <laughs> and and then people watched it, and that I think took all of us by surprise.
0: Yeah, well, it was hard to take your eyes off of. I came into it late, and then it just, I just kept letting it play i was like well shit <laughs> i
1: can't le- i can't stop now that's not healthy i, I don't how <laughs> really would that show it's 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 a rough watch but it's an honest watch and that is the same philosophy that i brought to you the last of us because at times it's rough but it's always honest i tried really hard to never go too far into exploitative when bad things happen, it's because they have to, not because we're excited about manipulating the audience or doing anything like that. So,
0: after Chernobyl comes around, you're critically lauded. Uh, I believe it wins some awards. What exactly did you notice like an instant change there as far as, you know, a- everything was concerned?
1: There was definitely a change. I mean, if you win a couple of Emmys and a BAFTA <laughs> and a RetroSkill award and, uh, you know, Peabody. People, people definitely at Golden Globe. They start to notice, and uh, and it, to the extent that awards have value, I think it is that awards can shine a light on some artistic spaces that otherwise might have been lost in shadow. And to the extent that Chernobyl was acknowledged by all of those people, it did change things because I think I was automatically taking taken seriously as a dramatic writer. Which was exciting, but also terrifying because then I got sent every possible disaster. <laughs> I mean, everything like everything from, you know, Bhopal or the Exxon Valdez to, you know, my grandma's the house burnt down. I mean, everything. Um, and I, so I, I found myself saying no a lot, which can be addictive. Uh, you can know yourself <laughs> to absolute paralysis. And Todd Phillips had always told me that he had got advice, but after he did the hangover and it was this massive success, he was feeling this weight. And whoever this person was said to him, if you have a massive success in Hollywood, do something, the next thing, whatever it is, do it immediately. Do not wait. If you wait too long, you will get locked into this paralysis of needing to somehow justify doing something better. When the fact is you should just do whatever you were doing to make the thing that you just made in the first place. Like, just be you and write something. So I was hell-bent on finding something that I felt good about doing. And that's when I heard that the, the rights to The Last of Us had suddenly emerged. And HBO had been great um, about, you know, while we were making Chernobyl, they made an overall deal with me. And so after Chernobyl finished and everything was great... I said, okay, look, I have this deal. You want me to give you stuff. What are you looking for? Maybe that'll help me narrow things down. And Casey Blois, who runs HBO said, what we want you to do is whatever makes you levitate. And that's why they're great. I mean, honestly, right there in a nutshell, any other place would have been like, here's what our algorithm says. Here's what our research says. Here's where our corporate interest lies. And nope, what he said was, what gets you excited? What makes you passionate? because he is smart enough and HBO has always been smart enough to understand when you have people that make things who are excited about what they're making, you can't keep them from the keyboard. You have to beat them away with a stick. And when I met with Neil Drockman and we talked about doing the last of us as a show, I called up Casey and I was like, levitating. <laughs> Please buy me this. I need this. I want to make it. It's also a
0: property that has had a lot of, false starts and attempts by other people to, to kind of win over Neil or just get it off the ground. How did you sell both Neil and actually get this thing across the finish line?
1: Well, selling Neil was easy because I didn't really sell as much as I just said in my own craggish way. Look, you've been (laughs) doing it wrong. Um, because Neil, Neil been doing it himself. You'd been trying and he had been trying to make it into a movie. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm telling you as a fan, that will never, ever work. I don't care if you are the greatest screenwriter alive, whether, I don't know, Tony Gilroy or Scott Frank, it doesn't matter. No one could make a good movie out of The Last of Us because the joy of it and the beauty of it is in the journey and the journey is long and the changes are subtle. It is a process that you fall in love with, not an outcome and not a plot. If you have two hours to tell the story, you are just going to be soaking in plot. And that is not the strong suit of The Last of Us. It's not to say that it's a bad plot, but the joy of The Last of Us, what makes it unique is the relationship between Joel and Ellie and how it evolves. And so I said, this TV show, and it's an HBO show, you shouldn't do it anywhere else. (laughs) And it should be treated like what it is, which is a masterpiece. And it should be made for the best streaming platform there is, the best network there is. And I laid out why. And he, you know, in his very Neil way, just was very quiet and, you know, listened and talked. And then at the end of this long lunch, he said, Okay, let's do it. And then I was like, Okay. And one week later, we went over to HBO. Uh, I pitched them the story because they didn't know it. They weren't gamers. Mm -hmm. Well, one, one executive Tala thought Tala is a gamer. So he knew. And he was like, I was counting on him after we left to be like, Guys, you don't understand. This game is (laughs) huge. And they just loved it. They loved it. I think Casey got super excited about the genre aspects of it, but also the characters. And I know Franny Orsi, um, who runs drama there, was also just, I think, understood that I was passionate, that I was in love with it. And so they said, go make it. And we've been going ever since, full speed ahead.
0: Yeah, and now it's a smash hit. I think I read it was the second biggest HBO premiere in twelve years. Biggest growth from one to two. You know, my neighbors are buzzing about it. Depeche Mode streams are up two hundred percent. Joel's jacket oh, is selling sorry. out. <laughs> it's like, what the <laughs> hell happened? It's kind of absurd. It's only two weeks.
1: How has this been for you, just as
0: an experience over these two weeks?
1: I, I it's been nuts. Um, and it really started when we saw the reviews coming in. We we had our premiere on, uh, I think it was January 10th, I want to say. And that was when the embargo lifted, like at midnight that night, while we're all at this party, the embargo was going to lift on the reviews. So I sort of excused myself at midnight and went to like one of the porta-potties they had set up and went inside because <laughs> I, I didn't want people to see me just curl up and die if the reviews were bad. <laughs> because it matters, you know? Um, th- there are areas where... Critics don't matter quite as much. You know, when we were making Scary Movie 3, the critics just didn't matter. For something like us, they do. And that was like, I was like, oh, okay, these are really good. And that was, so then my next anxiety was, is anybody going to watch this? thing? And boy, have they. Yeah. And it has grabbed them. And what I'm excited about is not only that people are engaging with the show in the way we, like beyond our wildest dreams of what we would expect. I also know that I think our best moments are yet to come. So there's going to be a lot to talk about over the next, you know, weeks as this show unfolds, it is, it is going to challenge the audience. It's going to challenge people who know the game extraordinarily well are going to find themselves on very solid ground, but then sometimes not on solid ground at all. Yeah. And for people who don't know the story, I think they're going to see how it's really, um, it it gets complicated and it stays complicated.
0: Yeah, I'm not a huge gamer because I have kids that eat up all of my freaking time. So every once in a while, my, my son will be like, let's play Mario. And I'll be like, yes, I can get back into it. But I have not been able to play The Last of Us. But I even I know that everyone says that The Last of Us is like one of the best stories in the history of video games. So in theory, you just have to not mess that up, right? Like, is the philosophy going in, just don't mess up what you have? Or are you like, what's the decision-making process? I,
1: I don't believe in playing defensively when doing these, things. I'm all about <laughs> offense. I'm all about be aggressive. So instead of writing from a place of fear, I am not a brave person, but I'm a brave writer. Um, when I'm writing, I just want to go for it. And that means, you know, you're going to take risks and you'll, some people along the way will be upset with you. I mean, listen, I, I wrote an episode where soldiers walk around Soviet Ukraine shooting dogs. If there's one thing they tell you to never put on TV, it's people hurting dogs, you know, it happened and I don't care. I just, that was the right choice. And so with Neil. I just said, we're going to examine and question everything. And I suspect a lot of times after all of our inquiry and interrogation, we're going to come right back to what was there. And, and there are times where I'm going to want to do it exactly like it was in the game. But this exploration may lead us to other places that enhance things because it's a different medium. At the beating heart level of it, though, it will always be The Last of Us. I understood it and I had Neil with me. So I knew no matter what I did, He's never going to let me break anything.
0: Yeah, for sure. And even like, I've been really fascinated by the fan discourse of it. Like I expected people to like turn their nose up to it and be like, well, th- you know, this person's hair is different or they changed this tiny little thing. But all the changes you're making have have been really like embraced or even like, hey, I like this version better. How are you able to to kind of delineate what changes
1: are are the best to make for this game? Well, you have to start by loving it. That's the most important thing, to start by loving it. If you come at it from a point of view of cynicism or superiority, you're going to blow it. Um, I think that there have been times in the past where the people who have been adapting video game properties haven't really been adapting the video game. They're taking IP, which is one of my least favorite expressions. I mean, I don't like lawyers using it. (laughs) That's their (laughs) job. call things intellectual property we shouldn't be talking about intellectual property we should be talking about art now if you come at it from an ip point of view and basically they're like well just make sure that they wear the suit and they do this action and blah 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 then you can end up with a dead thing that's not to say that there haven't been excellent video game adaptations because there there have been but you have to come at it from love and if you do then the changes you make come from love they come from an understanding that you must change as part of the adaptation process because it's going to be a different experience. You're going from interactive to passive. things will change, but you also have opportunities that you don't get in the game. For instance, mm-hmm. the ability to change perspective wildly yes, whenever you want. Well, that's, that is a heady uh, responsibility and you have to treat it well. So everything that we did, ultimately we did to make things as good as they could be on television. And that's, one of the things I love about Neil is how flexible he was as a source material creator, because people who create source material aren't necessarily known for being flexible, and he really was <laughs> and there's the the fungal pandemic of it all, which is it a huge change
0: from what is already there? I, I don't really know. That's a pretty big change, right? Um no,
1: not really. I mean that the the concept of the fungus uh, leading to this pandemic is is definitely right from the game. That was part and parcel with it. It's it's one of the things I loved about it when I played the game was how scientific it was in nature, because that fungus is real. Yes. And the things that it is doing to people in our show are things that it does right now today to entire colonies of ants, for instance, in the rainforest. We're talking about millions and billions of ants and other insects. It is cordyceps uh, and other parasitical fungi fungi are incredibly impressive they can eat away at a locust and that locust is still flying around for and fly around for days where most of its body has already been devoured by the fungus but the fungus is running it it's controlling it it's, it's terrifying so that was always there and how we bring that to life when we're out of the uh, domain of animation where the game lives that's where it gets interesting You had to put it in biscuits, bread, and cookies, didn't you? You just had to throw it in all my favorite things. (laughs) Well, that's the stuff that apparently is going to kill us no matter what we do. So, (laughs) I don't know. It's delicious. I would have have been infected within minutes. Amen. Same. So, I want to switch gears to
0: to Pedro and Bella because they're amazing in the show. How extensive was the search or did you always know, like, I really, really want Pedro Pascal and I really want Bella Ramsey?
1: (laughs) So interestingly, we'll talk about Pedro first, because that was sort of the easier one. When we were making our initial kind of, oh, who would be great? We were told that he wasn't available. And so we were looking at other people. And then nothing was really clicking. Uh, and I, and this was an area where I thought it would be good to have a known quantity, because y- you in a story like this, where so much of it is about how this man interacts with this kid... You want to feel a strong connection right away to one of them and have this other one being sort of pushed in there. And then you're like, and then you're supposed to fall in love with her. But having a known quantity, not for marketing purposes, but just emotional purposes made sense. Then suddenly I get this call like, um, you know, might not be unavailable. So I sent him the scripts for the first, I think, three, two or three episodes. And, uh, he was in London at the time. And I thought, well, it was like Friday I like, I uh, maybe we'll maybe in, in a couple of weeks. We'll hear back Saturday. Let's zoom. I <laughs> could get on a zoom with him. He is effusive and he is so wonderful and he gets it. So I called, uh, my friends, Dan Weiss, David Benioff, who had worked with him on Game of Thrones. And they were like, he's amazing. And that was it. That was it. Well, We got him. We got Joel. We, we got, we all got on a zoom together. Neil met him. Everybody met him. We were like, let's do this now. Ellie was trickier because Ellie was portrayed beautifully by Ashley Johnson in the 2013 game. I think Ashley was about 27 when she voiced Ellie, who was a 14-year-old girl. And the impact is Ellie is a child, but she's also very mature. So finding an actual kid or somebody that convincingly felt like a 14-year-old physically but who had this remarkable wisdom and Ellie's intelligence and her wit and her anger and her love, all of those things. We, we saw over a hundred people. But when I saw Bella's audition, I was like, well, we're done. (laughs) We got it. (laughs) That's simple, huh? That's look when you know, you know, and the, and the trick about casting is you watch all these auditions and you start to talk yourself into stuff because you get worried, like. No one's just like compelling me. So I'm going to convince myself, but you really need to wait until someone goes, oh, I don't have to convince myself of anything. We're good. And man, I, the two of them individually and together are so good in the show. I'm so proud of both of them.
0: Yeah. They're amazing. Uh, specifically, this is going to come up after three airs, Nick Offerman and Murray, Murray Bartlett as Frank and Bill. Holy cow, man. In my research, I discovered they had a very different story as well than what you went with. And it's just a phenomenal single episode of television. It broke my wife and I. (laughs) Like, it was one of those moments where you're sitting on the couch, you're not looking at each other because you're, you know, crying your eyes out. And it's just the moment I realized where this show could be, you know, it went from something I look forward to, to I got to see every fucking second of this show. Um, And... Talk me through changing their story, dedicating a whole episode to them. Was there pushback?
1: It was something that I saw as a possibility because in the game, the section, Bill is a great character. The session of the game with Bill is, uh, it's very gamey in the sense that you, you have a mission and you, because we can't leave Joel's perspective. Or later in the game, we become Ellie, but it's either one or the other's perspective. And that section was Joel's. We have to experience Bill through Joel. And so much of it is about how Bill becomes a kind of exploration partner in your quest to get a functioning car. And then you leave him. And there's this couple of things that were planted in there that were just gorgeous. One was that you realized that this guy, Frank, that Bill kept talking about as his former partner, was not merely a partner in crime. He was a partner partner. He was a life partner. And then they are just estranged, permanently estranged. And then you discover along with Bill that Frank has killed himself. And it's this kind of bitter ending. And Neil always intended it as a kind of cautionary tale for Joel. Like if you wall yourself off from everybody, you're going to end up like Bill alone and paranoid and angry and loveless. And uh, he's an amazing character. And I just thought like, well, Let's say we take away that gameplay aspect. We just had two episodes that are pretty intense. I feel like we could take a breath for a moment. We could explore actually how this guy came to have this town rigged up the way it is. In the game. <laughs> and then go a little further into the story of Bill and Frank. And, and then it became this very other thing with a very different ending. But the story to me is the kind of emotional codex for the whole series. It's about two different ways of loving. And it's about the people that want to make the world around them better and more beautiful and the people who take care of you and nurture you. And then on the other side, there are the people that protect you and defend you. And both kinds of love are necessary, but if they don't balance each other, you end up with a lot of dead artists or a lot of very violent protectors. That is is the dichotomy that we will see play out over and over as we go through the series. Everyone really, Nick, Neil loved that script. I was very nervous when I gave it to him because it was so different than the game, and he loved it. And then, you know, I, my hope was that it would go okay, but I got to tell you, like, just being on set, watching Nick and Murray do what they did, and get a lot of credit to Peter Hoare, the director, who just pulled these beautiful performances out of them. I mean... You were crying on your couch. I was crying behind the camera. I mean, there's <laughs> just something to behold. I'm so proud of those guys and what they did. It's, it's astonishing. And just as I was nervous when I gave the script to Neil, I'm nervous about fans watching it because it is different. But I hope that their response is the same as Neil's. And for people that don't know the game, I, I think I'm fascinated to see how they respond to this episode as well. It's a departure from the first two. That's for Dark sure.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be going... Over like gangbusters. (laughs) I think it's going to go really well. I hope so. Um, My editor was saying that you said something to the effect of the game made you question the value of love,
1: which
0: is a statement that I feel like needs some unpacking. Could you elaborate there at all?
1: Well, I think we, especially artists, can easily fall to the trap of romanticizing love. That's the whole point of romance. And love conquers all and love makes the world go round. And that's all true. But love also is right there behind some of the worst things we do. People kill people out of love. People kill the people they love out of love because the love gets twisted and turned. Love is such a powerful emotion. And in our desperation to preserve it, it can turn very quickly into fear and then anger and hatred. Starting to get all Yoda about it, but that's true. And... <laughs> If you scratch the surface of tribalism or xenophobia, nationalism, racism, anything that's about us versus them, you're going to find love—the love of our group, protecting our people. And if you go even further and even really personal, so you're a dad, you have how many kids? Do you have the one or three, 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 three under six. six. Oh, oh, my God! I don't even know how you're <laughs> alive. So I had I had two under six at one point. I felt like I had a thousand kids. Um, you, As a parent, you know that there's this love that you didn't even ask for. It just happens. Yeah, And that love is so intense that it can lead your mind to some dark places. Like, for instance, how many lives would be worth your three kids' lives? Mm. If it was my three kids versus a thousand of everybody else's. On a moral level, if I said here are three kids over here. Here are a thousand kids over there. You got to send one of them to, to death. You go, well, I'll keep the thousand. Thank you. But, uh, but if it's your three kids, well, why is that so different? Because of love. Mm -hmm. And that is to me, a theme that is well worth exploring. It's what made the original last of us. So incredible to me. It's why people still argue about it. And, It's why people still argue about the second game and that story, which took that even further. And I just love that. I love that. I I think it's well worth examining because if we don't examine it and if we don't understand it better, then it is more likely to get a hold of us and, you know, perhaps lead us down some bad paths.
0: Okay, they're giving me the wrap here, so I'll just end on this question. A lot of people are assuming that because there's only two games, you didn't want to adapt beyond the two games, that there's only going to be two seasons, but that's not to say that, you know, they're you're gonna adapt the whole first game in season one or whatever. So could you clarify like how many seasons you're planning for at this point? We pretty
1: much cover the first game in this season. The remaining material is quite a bit more involved and rather extensive in comparison to the first game. There's really no way to tell the story of the second game in one season. Uh, and and when you look at how we adapted The Last of Us in this season, you can already see where it's not just the story that's there. Sometimes it's these other stories we want to tell. We really want the freedom to do it right. The one thing I insist on is never boring people or putting out filler episodes. They've got to stand on their own and be compelling always. I think that... As we continue, there's no way. There's no way. It's it's can only be the rest of it can't be can't be told in just one season. That said, however long it takes to tell that story, that's exactly as long as we will take, and no more. Uh, this is not something that goes on forever. It has an end, and we write toward an end.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, again, I'm a huge fan. I'm excited for what's going on with The Last of Us. I'm excited to see what goes on beyond The Last of Us. For everyone listening, The Last of Us airs new episodes on Sundays on HBO and HBO Max. I'm sure all of you have heard about it now. Craig, thanks again. Amazing. Thanks.